Hi, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Hope Jersey City. I'm Jimmy, and I'm going to take you to the Word. So would you stand with me? Could I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to skip from 1 to 2 to 3. And so I'd like you to ask you to follow with me here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Pardon me. Um, So the problem of God, did God say, and we're also... It's, it's kind of toasty in here, isn't it? Um, I'm actually, this is interesting. I, I spoke a few weeks ago, and this seems like a good segue from that. When I talked about what the, what the Word of God and the Bible meant to me and what it did for me in my life, now we're here. We're actually talking about the Word of God. And Christians believe that the, that the Word of God, that the Bible is the one true Word of God, that it's authoritative and that it's authentic communication from him to us. But what's the basis for this belief? That's kind of the topic of today. What's the basis for this belief? In a world where claims to knowledge and stories and, and sacred texts are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. And what's the basis when much of our society, much of the, the developed world... Um, believes that truth is relative. And we've been talking over these topics over the last few weeks, and I'm going to be continuing on with that. And so one of the aims here, so I want to just say this in the beginning. We believe the word of God is the word of God because we believe in God, right? We believe in the messenger. And and you know, even among your friends and even among professionals, that you trust the word of a person who's qualified, And so that's why we believe. And so this, what I'm talking about today, is sort of like in addition to that. In addition to what we already believe, what are some of the things that can help us to feel even more confident that the Bible is God's word? And so the aim here is to counter whatever the serpent has sown in our hearts, beginning Genesis 3, even till today. I'll try to attempt to do that. And so I have three things that I want to talk about. Um, the first is that 
Well, here's one of the base the, the three bases the three bases is that the Bible is unique among world narratives. Second is that it's time it has time tested effectiveness, and the third is that it is inherently translatable. The uniqueness among the narratives. Now, before the first two points, I want to start off by cutting through some weeds. If you've ever done any gardening or farming, you got to get rid of all that stuff, right? So let's get through some stuff before we go. The French philosopher Michel Foucault, he coined this phrase uh, or this word, power knowledge, power hyphen knowledge. And this, is, this, is, this concept is basically the subtle normalizing power grab by societies or people when we have a claim to knowledge. I, I have claim to knowledge or I have claim to truth. It means that knowledge is taking power over you. It's giving power to my community over your community. And so because of that, whether you believe it or not, whether you like philosophers or not, I know most of you don't because they're argumentative and, and on all that, a lot of our society has adopted this kind of thinking. The result is that we're mostly suspicious of any claim to knowledge. Your knowledge is your knowledge, and my knowledge is my knowledge. And let's keep it that way. But there's problems to this, right? There's like deep problems. Because if you say that, nobody has a claim to knowledge. And if you try to do it, you're trying to take power for your community over my community. Then that statement in itself is, is basically what he's trying to argue against, right? Is trying to take power from other people. And it's inherently self-refuting. Because at some point, you have to say either none of these statements are true. They're all true in their own ways and they're all false in their own ways. Or you have to think, you have to ask, then which one? Which one's right? Which one's legit and which one's not? Which one actually shares power rather than hoards it and distributes it rather than centralizes it? So that's, that's kind of my quick way of, of cutting through that weed. The first thing that makes the Bible unique is its historicity. Uh, it's just historically accurate. It's based in history. It's rooted in history. It's historicity. If you read other religious or philosophical texts, you, you'll, 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 if you go through any of them, just, just start reading at any random point or even in the beginning of any of those texts, you'll, hear, you'll read things like, once upon a time, or in a galaxy, or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Uh, kind of a modern sacred text. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll read, this is a poem. You know for sure this is an epic poem, or this is a tragedy, or this is a, a, just a, a, a list of teachings. But when you read the Bible, you'll see extensive and detailed genealogies, specific dates and time periods, names of kings of during those times, geographical landmarks, cities, territories. It's very specific. It's almost as if everybody that's written here in the first chapter was like, hey, fact check me, all right? But not many people wrote like this back then. This is more like actual like reportage. So some examples, Ezekiel chapter one. In my 30th year, he's like, I was 30 years old. 
In the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. That's pretty detailed. It's like, this is my dad. Here's where I was. Here's the time period. This guy was king. These guys were in power. And, and, and something happened. Luke chapter 1. Many, not just one dude, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. It's not just some one crazy guy who's like, oh, you know, I, I know, you know, something happened, something crazy happened. He's like, everybody, like a lot of people said this. Just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Not once upon a time, but this happened not too long ago. Luke chapter 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Roman emperor, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Roman governor, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, Tetrarch meaning four, one of the four kings of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the priesthood of, of Annas and Caiaphas, religious leaders, <clears throat> pardon me, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Fact check me. This happened. This, these guys lived. The historicity of the Bible. Now, that may not be important to you. It's not that important to me. It's, it's interesting and it's fun. But it's important to some people. <clears throat> Pardon me. I have this. Maybe I had too much oatmeal this morning. Sorry. Um, how important is it? It was important for C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis... He had an, a, uh, a spiritual autobiography called The Surprise by Joy. And I, and I had to rack through my books, you know. And I was like, oh, man, this, this is a hard series. I have to go through my library and pull them all out. Because little things that I remember from here and there. And I remember, I remember this. He talked about his conversion toward the end of the book. <clears throat> and he said that this was the last straw that broke the camel's back for him. It was the historicity of the Bible. He said, he said this. Early in 1926, the hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire. I mean, you can imagine them. They're both probably sipping on scotch and smoking cigars or, or pipes or something. And they're in this, there's a fireplace. And remarked that the evidence of the historicity of the Gospels was surprisingly good. Rum thing. He went on. What is that? I don't know. Rum thing he went on. All that stuff of Frazier's about the dying God. Rum thing. It almost looks as if it really happened once. And to understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of toughs, were not, as I would still have to put it, safe, where could I turn? Was there then no escape? And immediately, very shortly after that, was his conversion. And related to this idea of historicity, it's the transparency of the Bible. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't try to cover up human flaws. And it's, it's, it's that in spite of human failure, 
God's will prevails. And it's in spite of human failure, people, normal people like you and I, we call them saints, right? But you really read the Bible. They don't look like saints, right? Abraham lied a lot. David was a murderer. The disciples were ignorant. And Peter was ethnocentristic. Paul confronts him about that. When they had flaws, the Bible doesn't cover it up. It says, this is how they were, and this is how God used them. In history, not once upon a time, not hearsay, this is what I experienced. The second point I want to make here is the Bible's effectiveness across time, culture, and race. Now, I said I'm going to cut through the weeds, and I'm going to cut through the weeds here also. Much of our world believes that truth is relative. And this goes all the way back from a- to, to ancient Greece, uh, the ancient Greek philosophers. But it was really fleshed out by guys like Richard Rorty and the consequences of pragmatism. That morality isn't something that comes down from God. It's something that you and I construct through our language, through the agreements that we have with each other. And because of that, we mostly disbelieve any claim to knowledge that we say comes from God. The reason why we have to cut through this, this weed is because if we can't see, right, that there is a single source of truth, that morality isn't just a language construct, but it's something deeply embedded and given to us, we can't really, really appreciate the Bible for what it is. And, and to some point, though, I have to agree with, I have to agree with Rorty. I have to agree with Gadamer, who wrote Truth and Method. He talked about how all of our stories, our histories, our contexts, they play a huge role in the way that we interpret events, the way that it, we interpret literature, the way that we interpret art. Me being Asian American is, is a huge factor in the way I interpret things. But that's not, that's not where it ends. Because at the end of the day, if that's true, if all truth is always relative, then what, we can't really understand each other. We couldn't understand each other. We couldn't understand Rorty. We couldn't understand Foucault. We couldn't understand the philosophers. And if my wife tells me to go take out the garbage and I throw out our TV, she'd be like, what, what did you, why did you throw out the TV? <laughs> so it's garbage. <laughs> like, it'd be mayhem. So at some point, there's, there has to be a point where we stop and we say, this is where I stand. Hebrews 4.12 says this. Oh, I have to go here for that because I didn't, I didn't type that part out. Um, Hebrews 4 says this. 4.12. Um, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is living and active means that it has a will, that there's somebody behind it. There's an intent to it. There's a very specific thing that this word wants to say to you. If you examine a corpse, I don't know if you guys watch Bones. My wife really likes to show Bones. Um, I don't watch it that much, but every time, in every episode, they're examining Bones. And the Bones tell you a story. They can tell you, uh, if this person was an athlete or was lazy or whatever. Um, not, that if, not that you're lazy if you're not an athlete. Um, but one thing you have to admit is this, that a corpse can't challenge you. 
You can't have a relationship with it. And it can't, definitely cannot save you. When the Bible says that the word is living, it means that when you ask God a question, the Bible, God will respond to you through that word. When it says it's active, it means sort of like when you read the label on your yogurt, it says live and active cultures. It means that there's something that's happening inside of you that you can't perceive, right? It's active even when you're passive. It's doing something. It has life. And so if it's alive, it's not totally just subjective interpretation. It has a will. It has an intent. And there's somebody behind it. C.S. Lewis also, I'm quoting him again. He said this in The Abolition of Man. The kind of explanation which explains away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. But you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's a mind bender. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. And to see through all things is the same as not to see. To always teach that that truth is relative is to say that everything means nothing. To illustrate, I had a conversation. It was an exhausting conversation with a man who just kept on trying to refute and rebuttal everything that I was saying. And I said to him, I said, bro, where, where does it end? And he, had, he knows it's funny. The, the, it, was a, it was the first point of transparency and also vulnerability on his, his side. He, he just stopped and he was like, you know what? Man, like, I've been having a problem with that. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't know where it ends. <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a big problem. You got to start somewhere. You got to have a starting point. G.K. Chesterton, who highly influenced um, C.S. Lewis in his works, he said this, there is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. He's talking about that. In addition, he says this in his, in his book, Orthodoxy. I love this. You should read, you should read Chesterton. It's, it's really fun to read. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Today, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt. The divine reason. If you get through those weeds and you can finally see what I'm saying, then you have to see the undeniable effect, the effectiveness that the Bible has on people, on souls. From humbling it into giving it life and love. Its teachings have led to triumphs in education and science, social justice, healthcare. And what the serpent is trying to say at this point is this. Don't listen to that. God wants to box you in. He wants to take power over you. He wants to control you. Real power, real success is, is out here. But the truth is, is that is a thought that stops thought. Because instead of wrestling with this word, we just give in. We submit. And we, and we walk away from it.
I believe here that the power of the fruit that, that Eve and Adam took, Adam and Eve took, and there was no real power in it. I don't believe that there was some magical property. I think it was simply this, that when they took it, they realized what they did. And that they realized that the serpent was lying to them, but there was no turning back. They'd done the unthinkable. Because they doubted the word. And the last point here I want to make is this, that the Bible is inherently translatable. This is like a, it's kind of a non-obvious point or an obvious point, but it's inherently translatable. The late professor, Laman Sonnet, <clears throat> from Yale Divinity School, he actually passed away this year, January 6th. He was a, um, he has Muslim roots. He was a, he, he, when he was growing up, he was Muslim. He grew up Muslim. Grew up in Gambia in West Africa. And <clears throat> he wrote this book called Translating the Message. And in that book, he, he makes a very strong case that Christianity repeatedly honored local languages by making, by making those translations happen and taking the word of God and giving it to people. He says, whereas in his, his old tradition, which was, was, was uh, Muslim, he said that there's a very strong emphasis on learning Arabic so that you could read the Quran the right way. He says the Bible was meant to be translated, and that's what missionaries did from the beginning. And from its inception, because of that, the Bible broke out, and, the, and Christianity broke out. And it was for this particular reason, this ability and this mandate to translate the gospel, that the Reformation had to happen in the 1500s. What happened during that time? The church at the time was saying, if you want to really read the Bible, you have to learn Latin. You got to learn Latin. If you don't learn Latin, you're not going to read the Bible. And so the Reformation had to happen because in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And that means that when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, Nobody had to learn Hebrew or Greek or, or they didn't have to learn the language of the Bible because God knew your language. And the point of Genesis 3 is that when you don't know the word of God, it's easy for the serpent to deceive you. Now here's an interesting thing that, that Eve says. She says, we can eat from any of the trees of the fruit of, uh, of the gar- fruit of the trees of the garden except for the one in the middle. And by the way, we're not even allowed to touch it. And so, like, God never says that, right? He never says, you can't touch the fruit. He just says, don't eat it. But she adds something to it. And I believe that that was the very point that the enemy or the serpent was able to trick her. Because I imagine, in my imagination, that he takes the fruit and he touches it. He says, look, I'm not dead. And immediately, what, what do you think? If you're Eve, I would think the same thing. God lying to me? What's he trying to hold back from me? What's he hiding from me? This person has just falsified God's statement. When we don't know the word of God, we make error upon error upon error. So knowing it is really important. Religion says that if you want to be really pious, you have to visit these holy sites and these holy cities. 
But Matthew 28, 19 says, go and make disciples of all nations. Just go, get out there. Anywhere you go is a holy city because I'm with you. Amen? Religion says, if you want to be a true believer, you must obey X, Y, and Z laws. But Acts 16, 31 says, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. I was um, in seminary 2013 and uh, there was a shuttle bus from the Mary dorms um, to the campus. I used to take that to go to, um, at night, I used to go to a couple times a week to uh, like a jujitsu class. So I'm in a duffel bag, I got on the shuttle bus, and there was a new bus driver. <clears throat> the bus driver looks at me, he says, hey. And I'm like, this guy, he's out, of, he's out there. Are you Korean? I said, you know, like a new, good, suspicious New Yorker. I'm like, well, that depends. Why do you want to know? He says, I've been learning some Korean. Oh, you have? Okay, in that case, I am. <clears throat> And uh, he, he starts saying all these phrases, and you know, he's like, he's making me laugh, right? And and I said, why, why, what made you, what made you want to learn Korean? Like, you got a, like a girlfriend or something, or what's going on? And he says, man, like when I became a Christian, just something just sparked off in me. I just started wanting to learn languages. I was like, why? He says, I just felt like that was the best way to honor a person and to show them respect, because. God knows all languages. I wanted, I wanted to do that. And I, and I just was like, the reason why this was blowing my mind, because I was studying Lamansana at this time, and I was, he was like a, a, a footnote in one of my papers. And I just thought, that's real. Like, nothing in the world, nothing brought him to that, that conclusion, but God himself. He says, God speaks all languages. And I thought that was amazing. And that brought me back to the big question that led us here. Is the Bible relevant for all people and for all time? Here are some better questions to ask. <clears throat> which, which story, which narrative, which claim to knowledge has the power to transform the heart? Which one shows me that I am fully known and fully loved by a gracious and all-powerful God? Which story tells me that all the bad things that I've done and all the failures in my life can not only be used, but used for the good of God's plan? Which story can bring people who were once enemies, both ethnically, both racially, both nationally, together. Now I can go to any part in South America or Africa or anywhere else and meet another Christian and call that person my brother or sister and love them like I love my family. Which narrative can take the extrovert and make them an introvert and take the introvert and make them an extrovert? Which one can make the rich poor and the poor rich? Which one can take your successes and call them failures and take your failures and make them successes? Which one makes the blind see and the seeing blind, the deaf hear and the hearing deaf? Can make the Republican embrace social justice and the Democrat to pursue personal holiness 
There's really only one book that I see that can do that, that can bridge all those gaps, that can change our hearts. Which meta narrative, which story distributes power instead of hoards it? The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit was given to us, that it made us and it gave us power. And it wasn't just given to like a few people. It was given to anybody who called on the name of Jesus Christ. And that Holy Spirit, who's the very presence of God living inside of us today, in the communities of faith, the Bible says, enables you to be powerful, to overcome anything. The Bible was effective for me. It was effective in my life. You want to tell you how? In a very simple phrase that comes from Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through God who strengthens me. That's my life. That's what I, I came away when I started reading the word. And when the Holy Spirit came into my life. He lives in me. I can do anything. Yeah, I was a high school dropout. But I went to school. And I finished. Yeah, I was penniless. But then I prayed. And somebody donated a car to me. Yeah, I was afraid that I would be alone. <laughs> and God sends me a good, a good, my best friend. I was afraid that I would never be used again a few years ago. I was a failure in ministry. I was a failure in my life. And he brings me here. I almost threw my books away, you know. And I still have them so I can use them here. With God, all things are possible. Not because I imagined it or some dude said it to me. Because that's what this word says. Over and over again. In spite of your failures, in spite of your weaknesses, God is strong. He's alive. He's active. And he's speaking to you now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for this wonderful gift, your word. And God, it's just amazing to me that so many men and women have, have they, they, they taught and they, they, they made these teachings and they, they died and their teachings became a word, but it was only you where there was a word that became a man. And it became Jesus. And we thank you that, Father, that through the incarnation, through your coming to flesh and translating yourself to us, you saved our lives. And you showed us who you care. I pray that at this time, that by Jesus and by your Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us daily. And may we hear you. And as we listen to you, translate us into the world so that we could be your light the way you translated yourself to us. We love you so much and we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.